Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker. Okay, here's a joke. Yasha Heifetz was one of the most extraordinary and famous violinists there ever was. And after a concert, a member of the audience went up to him and said, Wow, your violin sounds really great. He held the violin up close to his ear and replied, Funny, I don't hear anything. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party Download. Culture, food, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Margaret Bacher, concertmaster for the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. That'll help break the ice. We will hear more from her and a Stradivarius violin later. Fantastic. Plus, we speak with another musician and actor and comedian, Steve Martin. A dinner party heavyweight, folks. Right. Also coming up, we learn where Pirate Radio got its name, and filmmaker Davy Rothbart lists some beautiful losers. Plus, Switchel. Don't worry, we're going to tell you what that is. But first, as at any dinner party, we start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. A team of astronomers say they have found the Big Bang Theory's smoking gun. Well, they call it March Madness for a reason. Putin has officially declared Crimea as part of Russia. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Rehan Harmansi. She is executive editor at the food magazine Modern Farmer. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about a $2 million dog. Really? Is this like a new TV show, like Million Dollar Man? Or... <laughs> Is it half robot? It's a $2 million actual dog. What makes it worth $2 million? Well, it's a Tibetan Mastiff puppy that was just sold at a pet expo in China. Um, oh. And I guess that these dogs are extremely sought after in China. Yeah, I guess you're not going to be tying this dog up around a tree and feeding him kibble, right? <laughs> like, yeah. It seems like having a dog this expensive undermines the fun of like, having, of a, having dog. a pet. Yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I don't think they're going to touch it <laughs> with human hands. Every hair that comes off it is like another $1,000 lost. Yeah. <laughs> what is, I mean, is it especially beautiful looking? In China, I guess they're considered a national pet. Um, I saw a quote in the story that said that these dogs have lion's blood, which I'm assuming is not a scientific <laughs> yeah. thing. I mean, they they may actually feed this thing lions because <laughs> it probably gets to eat whatever it wants. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, this isn't the first time one of these dogs has gone for over a million dollars. Apparently a $1.6 million Mastiff sold a few years ago. Um, and the person that bought the puppy just this past week said um, he was planning on using it for breeding purposes, which also makes sense because you can charge, I think, up to $40,000 for the... Okay, we got it. Right. <laughs> the goods. All right. Well, I guess we won't be looking for this uh, Mastiff in the back of a car with its windows cracked <laughs> near the mall anytime and, soon. No. no. Rayhan Haramansi, thanks for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then ask a bartender to capture its essence in the form of a cocktail. It's like history is parched Southern California, upon which rains down booze. Causing only more problems. <laughs> Maybe. First, the history of this week back in 1964, pirates set sail from the United Kingdom. And not the kind with pirates and eye patches. Nope. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. In the mid-60s, British pop was a worldwide sensation. But you wouldn't have known from listening to British radio. See, back then, there were just three UK stations, all run by the publicly funded BBC, which spun a mere six hours of pop records per week. That's because A, the BBC was kind of square, and B, 
because the musicians' union wanted to promote live performances. They wouldn't let the Beeb play much recorded music at all. UK kids had to tune in staticky signals from Luxembourg to get their rock fix. Enter indie music producer Ronan O'Rahilly. He'd pressed a record by a pop singer named Georgie Fame, but he couldn't get it played on the few BBC shows that did spin rock. So in March 64, he bought a ferry boat, sent it out into international waters, and from it broadcast his own station, Radio Caroline. In just a few years, 10 other boat-based pirate stations floated onto Britain's airwaves, spinning top 40 rock for an audience of up to 20 million Britons. It wasn't easy. DJs spun during ocean gales, trying to keep their phonograph needles from skidding across the records. In the winter, they'd bring supplies on board and couldn't come ashore for weeks at a time. But when they did, thousands of fans greeted them as heroes. Here's news. Starting in September, the BBC begins a new service for fans of popular music. In 1967, Parliament banned the pirate stations. But the BBC had learned its lesson. Just a month later, they launched Radio One, an all-pop music channel. The first DJ on air was one Tony Blackburn, one of the stars of Radio Caroline. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to the exciting new sound of Radio One. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time to pair a drink with that history lesson. I'm speaking with Naomi Fletcher. She is a bartender at Hawksmoor's Seven Dials in London, obviously within range of these pirate ships that were broadcasting radio. Naomi, thanks for joining us. You've heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make? Okay, so I thought as uh, Ronan O'Reilly, the founder of Radio Caroline, was Irish, that I would start with an Irish spirit. So I've used Redbreast whiskey. Which is a very nice Irish whiskey. Yes, so I took that and, and then thought, I'd like to do something that was related to like sailors in olden times when they just had, you know, booze and lime juice. Prevent scurvy and filled with booze. Yeah, exactly. So I started with that and then I thought as a nod to the the pirate thing, I would add in a little bit of overproof rum. Okay. Put in some lime juice, as you say, to fight the scurvy on the boat. Uh, 10 mils of ginger syrup. That's consistent with like pirates. I think pirates like ginger. Yeah. And also, you know, I was thinking, you know, let's break the rules. Let's mix some whiskey with some rum. All right. You know. Um, I like it. You're a renegade. You're, <laughs> yeah. You're like Ronan. Yeah, exactly. So uh, some fresh raspberries as well. Raspberries? Yeah. Where did that come from? Well, everybody likes pink drink. Pirates don't drink pink drinks, <laughs> Naomi. Maybe they stole the raspberries from a more delicate boat. Maybe they did. <laughs> okay. They did. All but, right. Um, shake that and strain it into a highball glass with ice. And then for extra Irishness, I've added a Guinness float on top. <laughs> and so what, what are you calling the drink? I'm calling it the Rolling Wave in oh. honor of the first song that was played on Radio Caroline, which was the Rolling Stone song, I believe. Naomi, so you, I'm guessing that you weren't around when this was happening. No, this was before my time. Well, when you grew up, did the BBC mean anything to you? Um, I do remember recording songs off the radio, cassette tapes and things. Do you remember one of your favorite songs? Maybe we can go out on that song. I tell you what, I always like the Eurythmics. Enrico, I thought to really make that drink fit the history, Naomi could serve it from a kiosk miles away from the bar, (laughs) you know, like a ferry broadcasting music. That's perfect. 
Yeah. She would. Also, I think we should rent a boat and broadcast our show into England. <laughs> sure. It would be amazing. Our slogan could be, win your tea. <laughs> there you go. Or something. I like it. Could totally win tea. People, uh, you won't find much tea actually, but there are definitely cocktail recipes on our website. It is dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is Davy Rothbart. He's a contributor to This American Life, a novelist, and he edits and publishes the magazine Found. With Andrew Kahn, he co-directed his debut documentary, Medora, which airs on PBS nationwide March 31st. Here's Davey to tell us about it and his list. My name is Davey Rothbart, and Medora is about a small town in rural Indiana, Medora, Indiana, that's really fallen on hard times. You know, the factories have shut down, and their basketball team, the Medora Hornets, rarely win, if ever. They, the season before we got there, they got an 0-22 most sports documentaries, they're about you know trying to win a championship. This is a team just trying to win one game. They're winners in my book. They're losers in basketball. But there's something beautiful about just striving for success. So here's my list of some other beautiful losers. Number one is Mark Borchardt from the documentary American Movie. There's a few documentaries that have really shaped me and my filmmaking aspirations. Dark Days, Hands on a Hard Body, and American Movie. And American Movie is about this guy, Mark Borchardt. He's an aspiring filmmaker in a blue-collar suburb of Milwaukee. And this film, directed by Chris Smith, uh, shows Mark trying to make a film. He hasn't gone to film school. He, he's really just you know scrapping together crews from his friends. But, but he's incredibly passionate. This is ridiculous. We started May 94, man. We've got every f-stop known to man in the film, <coughs> and right now we got to take action, man. We got to go out to that field, put those scarecrows in on a killer slant. You know they've been there for years. The farms burnt down. It's going to be the opening shots for Coven, you know. It's got to be one of the funniest movies I've ever seen in my life. But he's so driven, and Mark's story is really the story of, of of striving for something that you you may never get. You may ne- he may never complete this epic film that he's set out to make. But just the act of trying and of being such a creatively passionate person is, is noble in itself. So anyway, we're out here today to try to redeem it, get these establishing shots for Colvin and, you know, do what you can. You know, we're in America today and we're ready to roll. Also, these are both movies, Medora and American Movie, about small towns, towns that have seen brighter days. And there's filmmakers, there's people who are passionate about art in, in places that are not San Francisco, New York, and L.A., you know, but are towns like Menominee Falls, Wisconsin. The drive to create art is not limited to a, you know, a certain type of person. Number two on my list of beautiful losers is a few select rappers. Rappers can be broken down into two types of rappers. Those who brag about how much money they make and those who would candidly admit that they're flat broke. My favorite rappers fall into the latter camp. There's a couple guys. Petey Pablo from North Carolina, he, he really talks about living life in a hard scrabble small North Carolina town. He's, he talks about, you know, trying to buy gas with the change in your ashtray. He talks about paying a light bill. You know, that's not stuff you usually hear from rappers on MTV. I understand how a lot of rap is aspirational, and I understand why it's fun for people to live out a fantasy, but it's also strange for me that's what's resonating with people. It seems like people like Petey Pablo or, or another favorite rapper of mine, D-Shot, 
These are my types of losers. And the third one on my list is William Waterman Sherman, and he's a character in probably my favorite book of all time, which is called The 21 Balloons by William Penn Dubois. This is a children's book that came out, I think, in the 30s or 40s. It's about William Waterman Sherman, who his dream is to sail around the world for a year in a hot air balloon. Finally, it's launch day, and he lifts off, and before he knows it, he's crash landing on, on the remote desert island of Krakatoa. But what he discovers is, is that there's a community of people from around the world who have quietly been building their own sort of utopian civilization. And the, the cool thing about it is you see that you might have some grand plan and that might totally unravel. You might have lost your way. You might have lost what you were hoping to gain. And yet, sometimes that leads to some other adventure that's more valuable. And I think that's true of these kids in Medora, Indiana, who, you know, they are setting out to win a basketball game, but what are they really gaining? They're gaining this teamwork, this camaraderie. They're learning life's big lessons. The guest list from Davey Rothbart, his basketball documentary Medora airs March 31st on PBS's Independent Lens series, right in the middle of March Madness. All right, coming up, is there anything comedian, writer, actor, and musician Steve Martin can't do? You forgot in my introduction, maker of faces. Well, you won't see his face, but you'll hear his voice when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, Public Radio's Arts and Leisure section. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, we taste Herman Melville's favorite sports drink. I don't know if that's arts or leisure. And we find out if a Stradivarius violin is more like chocolate or diamonds. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. Yes, and this week, it's Steve Martin. He's among the most popular and influential stand-up comics of all time. Yeah. He starred in the classic comedy The Jerk and went on to fame doing basically everything else an artist can do. Mm. This week, he sat down with Rico to talk about his music, and the interview started like this. We are here with Steve Martin. We are? Oh, great. Yes. Fantastic. Let me tell you about him. He is a maker of laughs. He is a writer of novels, plays, and films. He is an actor of stage and screen, but most remain to our conversation today. He is a Grammy-winning banjo player and bluegrass musician. His new live CD and DVD with the band The Steep Canyon Rangers, which also features singer Edie Brickell, is weirdly called Steve Martin and the Steep Canyon Rangers featuring Edie Brickell live. Where did you come up with that? I don't know. I think it was just... It was an emotional, poetic title that I came up with one night. Just the artistic temperament. After a few drinks. He launches a tour with Edie and the band in a few weeks, and Steve, it is an honor. Thank you very much. Very proud to be here. And you forgot uh, in my introduction, uh, under acting, maker of faces. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You do that on occasion. What's the best? Which face won you your recent uh, Lifetime Achievement Oscar, do you think? Uh, It would probably have to be the uh, face I made in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels as Ruprecht. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That is the Oscar-winning face. For those who haven't seen it, uh, you're... What do you mean for those who haven't seen it? Who hasn't seen that? the people who are like 10. They were not alive. (laughs) How do we describe Ruprecht? Uh, I'll describe it with this voice. (laughs) I don't know. Let's talk about your start on the banjo. In your book, you write that the inspiration for you was hearing Earl Scruggs's Foggy Mountain Breakdown. Correct? Yes. I, actually, I started, I think, really with the Kingston Trio and folk music and hearing the banjo in the background just being sort of strummed mm. and Pete Seeger. And then when I heard Earl Scruggs, that's what really sent it over the top for me. We have a clip of this. You want to listen to it for a second? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Earl Scruggs was such a genius. I mean, he transformed the banjo. It, there's a controversy whether he invented three-finger style playing, but he definitely invented Scruggs style, which is that style you just heard. I would hope so, since his name is attached yes. to it. <laughs> yes, it, was, it wasn't a coincidence. Now, at the time you heard that song, you were also into rock and roll, but you didn't, for instance, start playing electric guitar. What about right. Foggy Mountain Breakdown made you want to pick up the banjo? Well, you know, I, I, I don't really know why. There was something about the banjo that connected me back to something in America. I, I found it actually quite emotional and melancholy, actually. And the, the audience listening might not find what they just heard melancholy. Um, I did. You heard, You thought that song specifically? Well, I don't know if I found that song melancholy. I found it thrilling. But also there's the modal mountain sound of the banjo that comes from Appalachia. I just loved the modal sounds and the message of these obscure songs, murder ballads, and darkness of these tunes. You had banjo in your act from a very young age, like from almost from the very beginning. I did, always. But mm-hmm. there's a quote here from your book where you had this big revelation in college about being original, and here's the quote. I would have to write everything in the act myself. Any line or idea with even a vague feeling of familiarity or provenance had to be expunged. There could be nothing that made the audience feel they weren't seeing something utterly new. So how does that urge for newness and modernity jibe with bluegrass banjo, which is maybe the most familiar, oldest kind of American Well, song? in my comedy show, I, I really first started using it because I needed time. I needed at least 15 minutes on stage to fill an act fill an act up and i at that time i could do magic tricks i had a few jokes juggling and banjo but i also used it as my act grew and became more let's call it surreal yes i liked the fact that i had something that looked hard (laughs) because uh (laughs) i was worried that the audience might think oh he's just goofing around up there And I wanted them to have something to land on that said, well, that looks hard. Maybe this other thing is not as just casual as it might look. I mean, that was what I was thinking. I I don't think it actually worked that way, but that's what I was thinking. (laughs) You know, remember, I was 20. I mean, it's interesting because there is a kind of the precision of banjo picking. It's not a coincidence that that goes hand in hand with comedy in a way. The timing even of your most surreal stuff is extremely crafted. Well, a lot of uh, comedians are musicians. Um, Is that right? No. Well, actually, Woody (laughs) Allen, I was thinking of Woody Allen, uh, plays clarinet. Kevin Nealon plays five-string banjo and guitar. Really? Yeah. Do you jam? Uh, Yes, we do sometimes. Uh, Will we get an album? I don't think so. Come on. The comedians of of Who would want to buy that? Me. (laughs) Anyway. Um, The first thing you say to the audience in this live show, is a joke about cell phones. Right. In the songs you reference therapy and email, it's pretty clear that you're not interested in presenting bluegrass as this, like, relic from a museum. Right. But I'm wondering, is it more important to you to bring new fans to bluegrass, which I, I think they would be drawn by that, or to not drive away existing bluegrass fans? And I'm sure the answer would be both, but which one, I guess, do you fear alienating? You know, I, I, I just really can't play bluegrass in the pure traditional sense. I don't have the voice for it. I don't have the three-finger style for it. I used to play 
exactly like Earl Scruggs yeah. or try to. It's incredible. Your your version of Feige Mountain Breakdown is eerily similar. That's what well there's almost no other instrument where to play exactly like someone is lauded. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Why is that? Because everybody wanted to sound like Earl. But and it still is that day. If you can play Foggy Mountain Breakdown exactly like Earl, that's a fantastic thing. <laughs> uh, but um, you know, I didn't have instructors. I had a friend, John McEwen, who helped me quite a bit. Mm. But I didn't have instructors, so I really developed my own way of playing. And I, I learned a few, you know, Scruggs tunes. But now I'm really playing my own way. So it sounds like you're not really interested in appealing to purists. Uh, well, I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Gigs up. Yeah. That's all there is to it. Uh, you know, I, I remember this uh, anecdote I heard where they asked Cormac McCarthy about a certain movie. The author, yeah. And they said, uh, Cormac, they ruined your book. And he said, no, they didn't. It's right there on the shelf. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if somebody wants to hear traditional bluegrass, it's very, very available. <laughs> it's there for you. <laughs> you know, the internet you know, exists. I, let's put it this way. I don't think the audience wants to come to hear me do traditional bluegrass. Yeah. You know, I've written all the songs in the show, and it's been working so far. I want to say for those who know you mainly from your humor and are maybe bluegrass-averse, mm -hmm. this is actually a very funny show. And there are a yes, lot of funny true. sides and hilarious songs. And one of my favorites is called Jubilation Day. Can you introduce this for tell us what it's about? Well, uh, I always try to find an angle on a love story. So uh, on this one, I thought, well, first of all, breakups. I don't think they get written about very often in love songs. So I thought I was going to go with that. And I wanted to make it a song like if you were breaking up with somebody, it's like, mm, maybe there's a feel-good side to it. <laughs> all right, let's listen to Jubilation Day. I'm walking away. Let's only remember the good times. I'm walking away. Like when you broke your foot. I'm walking away. But the sex was great. I'm walking away. He said, what my best friend's brother said. I'm walking away. And I'll never forget that great advice you gave me. I'm walking away. Blah, 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 That's not something you hear often in a country song. It's just blah, blah, blah. It's a great lyric right there. I love that the Rangers back it up with blah, blah, blah. You know, they're perfect. And they came up with that. He said, what if we went blah, blah, blah? Perfect harmony. Just folk and country music in general seem more able to have humor grafted onto them than, say, rock and roll? Why do you think that that Well, is? in the early shows I saw in the 60s when folk music came to Orange County and bluegrass music came to Orange County, there was always a funny introduction to a song. And it could be deadly serious and still have a funny introduction. So that was just in my bones. Why do you think that is, though? Why, why is it okay? Because it was a show. It was a show as much as it was a concert. In a folk concert. Right. And even when I first saw the Dillards, Doug Dillard, it just, oh, I've got to do that. I've got to do that. He was lightning fast, and he always capoed up to the fifth fret, so the banjo sounded extra high-pitched and extra piercing and extra driving. And they just had great, great comedy. You were laughing, and then you'd just be thrilled and amazed when they sang the songs. And that's a trope of folk music. In rock and roll, it's not. You know, that's not something you come to the show expecting. Absolutely not. I remember once I was sitting in Lorne Michaels' office, and Mick Jagger called. He was. They were going to do the Super Bowl. Right, right. The Rolling Stones were going to play halftime. And he was looking for some jokes. And <laughs> for the Super Bowl, <laughs> yeah. Mick Jagger. And I said, I said, I've got one. I said, How about this? Please, no photos. <laughs> <laughs> now I realized later he couldn't have been asking for the 
show period. Maybe he was asking for the uh, for, interviews or something. Yeah, for but, when he meets people yeah. afterwards. <laughs> Mick Jagger isn't going to pause his Super Bowl halftime show to deliver some one-liners. <laughs> All right, we always end our interviews with two standard questions. The first one is, if we were to meet you at a dinner party, what question would you least like to be asked? I remember one uh, interview question that really depressed me. It was um, <laughs> after I had done L.A. Story the movie L.A. Story. Right. And into the script of L.A. Story, I put everything I believed about L.A., both emotionally, practically, philosophically, and fancifully. Mm. And I really poured my heart into this movie. And now it's time to promote it. And I sat down and the very first interviewer said, what do you really think about L.A.? <laughs> <laughs> I just spent three years yeah, telling you. Yeah, I just had no answer. Our second question is, tell us something we don't know. Uh, you probably didn't know that I was, at one time, a pretty good trick roper. Like lasso tricks? Yes. When I was in my teen years, I could throw the lasso around myself and jump in and out of it and throw it over my head and twirl it around my body. In fact, you can even see it in Three Amigos. Oh, that's uh, right. But, but I had to relearn it. I, When I was about seven years old, a cowboy came to our school, and his name was Monty Montana. And he of came course. with his horse, and he rode up and down. And when I did Three Amigos, it was Monty Montana who came to refresh my skills. What? Yeah, it was fantastic. You that guy was still alive? He was still alive, yeah. That's amazing. By the way, is there any kind of old-fashioned skill that you don't have? Do you also whittle? <laughs> <laughs> I don't whittle. <laughs> Steve Martin, and this lovely almost pop track, actually, is off his new live album with Edie Brickell and the Steep Canyon Rangers. They just launched a spring tour, which will culminate at the Hollywood Bowl in July. And you're listening to the Dinner Party Download from Americana Public Media. And now the main course, where we talk about our favorite part of a party, the food. Enrico, I thought I'd heard of pretty much every drink out there. Beer, limeade, mm. kombucha. V8 is another. Actually, I don't really consider that a drink. <laughs> it's more like cold soup. But anyway. Wow, I won't tell it you said that. I I'd never heard of the non-alcoholic beverage Switchel until just last week when I saw it for sale in a mason jar at my corner store. Creepy. It's the color of apple juice. It's stored cold. Uh, so to taste some and find out more about it, I visited Switchel makers Ellie Key and Garrett Riffle at the kitchen in Brooklyn where they make it. All right. My first question, what the heck is Switchel? Traditionally, it was powdered ginger, apple cider vinegar, and sweetener. We use fresh ginger, raw organic apple cider vinegar, and Vermont maple syrup, as we're a Vermont company. Whereas in southern United States, it's sweetened with molasses, because that's a local sweetener there. And in the middle states, honey. Was it like old school Gatorade? Absolutely. It's the original sports drink. How they used it is most similar to Gatorade. They used it to rehydrate. And the reason that the ingredients are what they are is um, ginger would is, has analgesic effects and would numb the stomach, therefore allowing them to drink more fluid and rehydrate. Um, the apple cider vinegar was put in there to give like a refreshing citrus flavor. And then obviously the maple syrup to provide energy and palatability. Just for the record, Switchel's way cooler than Gatorade. But the product or the name? Both. Historically, it's a farmer's beverage. They would make it when they were hanging fields to clear their throat and keep them going. 
and it wasn't uncommon for them to mix it with a little moonshine or homebrew at the end of the day. But the question is, would they dump Switchel on top of someone after they finish bailing hay? Uh, yeah, I, I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. <laughs> well, you talked about some of the history, and your, and your website talks a little bit about that. Who are the Switchel endorsers of uh, back in the day? Um, little House on the Prairie, I think, made the first literary reference. Michael Landon's hair? Switchell's responsible for that? Yeah, I think so. That's incredible. So what happened to Switchell, though, guys? I've heard of Gatorade. I've heard of beer. Haven't heard of Switchell. Regional, cultural, diamond in the rough. You kind of got to get in there to uncover it. How did you guys find it? My dad used to drink it as a kid, hang fields up in Vermont. So then I was up there two years ago, living up there, working, and he told me about it. We started mixing it up. And uh, that's how I found out about it. Do we know why it's called Switchell? It's such a cool word to say. It's the historical name. That's what they called it back in the day. So um, in the South, they called it Haymaker's Punch. In the kind of Midwestern belt with honey, they would call it ginger drink or ginger water. In Vermont, it was Switchell. I mean, that's as far as my knowledge on it goes. We've looked pretty deep. Yeah, there are also references to it being called Swizzle, two Zs, L-E. Don't know where that comes from either. The swizzle? It's got to come from the booze. It's got to come from the, the late afternoon, after work, what do we call this drink. They actually traditionally made it with rum, too, in the Caribbean. All right, well, let's try it. So I'm looking at, they're in mason jars, 16 ounces. First of all, tell me about the mason jars, because, you know, in the food world, mason jars in Brooklyn now are kind of like the skinny jeans. Like, that people are almost alienating at this point, but it seems like you guys need to use mason jars. We absolutely do. If you take a look right behind me, here is our production equipment, and it's a large ball valve, and we have to be able to fit the mouth of the bottle around that to yeah. pour and we couldn't do it with any other bottle. There wasn't any other way to produce Switchel on the level we produce it without making a huge investment, which, you know, we're just a small company that started a farmer's market. All right, well, let's let's give it a try here. Do you want to do a cheers? Yeah, cheers. Cheers. Mmm, that burns. So the ginger on it is pretty hardcore. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, kombucha without the hippie stuff. Right, without a weird mushroom that you pull out of your closet to make it. Yeah, same functional... Benefits is kombucha, probiotic, pro-digestion, and then a slew of other things. Ginger is particularly good uh, as far as pro-digestion, anti-inflammatory. A lot of research being done for cancer benefits. Wait, Switchel cures cancer, guys? Why, did you, why didn't you tell me that to begin with? Pour it all over you. Just fill up a bathtub and soak in it. So you guys started this a couple years ago, and now you distribute it. What, what, did, did you encounter a Switchel culture once you started doing this? Are there Switchel heads around the country that you encountered? There are some Switchel heads. You find them at farmer's markets. Generally, they have a cane, and they come up and tell you how they used to drink it back in the day. That's good that they're still alive if they're old. Yeah, that's, that's one part of the Switchel culture. The other thing is we've kind of just created our own by pushing it in bars, mixing it with whiskey, and, and pushing it on everyone. Um, all right, well, you know what? I, I was surprised when I learned about Switchel because I thought I knew every drink. Do you guys, have you guys discovered any other drinks that like, we don't know about? I was looking through some historical Switchel references in the Library of Congress database the other day, and I found out about something called beef tea. All right, what's that? Is it what it sounds like? It's a colonial beverage right before Switchel. Yeah, they just boil beef bones and drink that like an afternoon delight. Isn't that broth? That's broth. But they called it beef tea. Beef tea. That's pretty tough. I could see that. I could see that being a follow-up to Switchel. Yeah, that's our next product extension. 
Ellie Key and Garrett Riffle, owners of Up Mountain Switchel. And Rico, turns out Herman Melville was a Switchel drinker. I thought this was coming. Yeah. In his short story, I and My Chimney, he writes, quote, I will give a traveler a cup of Switchel if he want it, but am I bound to supply him with a sweet taste? So it's old-time literary Red Bull is what we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, he drank it when chasing whales. All right. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up, Emily Post's progeny answer etiquette questions when the Dinner Party Download returns. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a brand new tune from the Paper Cuts. And coming up, Margaret Bacher, concertmaster for the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, espouses violins. You know bad puns are a form of violence. I did not know that. Very rude. Speaking of which, it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. Each week, you send us your questions about politeness, predicaments, and we find people of substance to answer them. And here to tell us how to behave this week are etiquette experts, advocates, and crusaders, Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. They join us once a month. And Lizzie and Daniel, welcome back. Thank you. So good to be with you. With your crusader capes in tow. I'm, I'm like right. loving the crusaders. We need to start using that in press. <laughs> I want to know what your costumes would look like. Instead of a bat signal, they show someone not opening the door for someone. <laughs> yeah. Sil- silhouette of that. But, oh, instead of a cape, a white tablecloth. Nice. But hey, guys, I, I, I want to start by asking you something. I'm tired of the weather, but I'm tired of people talking about the weather even oh more. Yeah. Like, what, what are yeah. the rules around this? I, I thought talking about the weather was not okay. Well, it's it's like that safe topic you're supposed to go to when you don't have anything else oh, to you go are. to. <laughs> and then it turned into that thing where it's like, if you're talking about the weather, that means there's nothing better to talk about, yeah. which is like, ooh, ouch. But at this point, I'm totally with Brendan on this one. I'm I'm sick of hearing people complain about it. Like, we have seasons. They change. Sometimes that <laughs> takes longer. Get over it. It's not going to do any good to just, you know, cry and moan. That doesn't sound polite, what you just said, though. I know. I'm Get feeling... Get over it doesn't seem like the post I'm, way. I'm feeling really blunt today. In Vermont, you can't talk about spring till the end of March. That's sort of a So, a, Dan, a we're almost there. <laughs> oh, no. I set the trap and we fell into it. I don't want to talk about the weather. What, we what don't want to talk what are, about weather? What are alternate things we can talk about for people who haven't listened to our show. Right, because we give them plenty to talk about. Can we about. talk about haircuts? Sure. I mean, We actually have a question about haircuts. Should we start with that? Yeah, let's do it. That's a great idea. All go right, ahead. here we go. Segway. Here, here come the questions. <laughs> uh, this is Amanda in St. Paul. She wrote, I just got my haircut by one of my daughter's friends. Who's Hopefully a... her daughter's over five. Um, so, <laughs> yes. Right, left-handed Sorry. scissors, kind of crooked line across her bangs. This daughter's <laughs> friend was incredibly nice, but sadly, I don't like the haircut, even after some fixes she tried. I would Ooh. never go back if I didn't have this personal connection. What to do? Mm. Does she go back? No, she doesn't go back. No. Like, you don't, you don't continue to see someone that even when you've tried to get it fixed, it doesn't work. Um, And I don't think there's like a lot of people say, well, when I've had a regular hairstylist, do I need to uh, tell them that I'm switching? And it's up to you. But for the most part, no, you don't. My hairstylist is actually one of my best friends. And I always ask her about this whenever the question starts coming up. Hmm. 
And she says, no, it's great to try other stylists and see if something else works for you. So I say, don't bring it up. Just go see another stylist. You know, you were seeing somebody else before and that was working for you. And if she questions you about it, you can just say that. Maybe maybe breakup rules apply. Breakup rules? I, I was thinking mean? breakup rules. Sometimes, you know, one party wants closure, but it just gets more painful the longer you drag it out. <laughs> it's, 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 it's not always the best case to go into every reason that yeah. you're separating or ending. Or... All right. This next question comes from Julia in Waco, Texas. It's a simple one, but it's a great question. Julia asks, who should clear the table, hosts or guests, parentheses, or whoever cooked? I love this question. Like, so what? You should make your guests clear the table when they come to your house for dinner? No. I absolutely not. You're the host. If you don't have someone who's who's serving the meal for you, then yes, you clear. It's wonderful if a guest offers to help, but there is no reason for the guest to be expected. And the host should never be expecting the, the guest to be the one to clear the table. That's true. I think maybe, though, this is more aimed towards guests, though, is the polite thing to do to to chip offer. in because I actually kind of feel bad if I don't chip it's, in. So it's great to offer, but bear in mind that some hosts really care about yeah. hosting you and not having you jump up and try to do all the work. Offer, and if you're turned down, don't worry about it. I, I will say that Clearing the plates is the easiest thing a guest can do, right? It doesn't yeah. require knowing anything. In, in fact, it's so simple. It's the example that we use as the teaching point to illustrate host-guest relationships. And that, wow. that's the dance. One person offers. The other person politely declines. But you offer <laughs> to do something you'd be willing to do if the host were to say, yes, please. Okay, but wait. Hold on one second. We went to the easy comment. And I'm just going to throw out there. People do sometimes use their nice china or they use their silver. And they would rather be the one to break it than to have a guest break it. Yeah. Dan nods his head in shame. Or, or <laughs> are you going to carry the dishes, you know, either one in each hand to the table and not stack them up on top of each other, which can scratch the patterns. Uh, um, it gets more okay. food onto the bottom of the plate, that sort of thing. Man, these are some um, picky hosts woo, that you're talking about. Right? I'm just going to say that was delicious <clears throat> and clear my throat until someone <laughs> exactly. moves my plate. Good, nice. good you could snap your fingers a little, you know, like, hey, <laughs> yeah. garçon. Right here, you guys. <laughs> Thank you, Daniel. All right, here's something from Caleb in San Francisco, and not surprisingly, he has a tech question. Uh, Caleb wrote, <laughs> I went on a hike Saturday, and my cell phone must not have been screen locked. I butt dialed 10 different people, some of them multiple times. It's kind of funny, maybe a new record, writes Caleb, but... Some of the call recipients were work associates and freelancers, people I have no business calling on the weekend and with whom I've only had professional contact. How do I make this right? And can I can I read the follow-up, Rico, because it comes from my heart. Yeah, all right. Is there a polite euphemism for butt dial? Let's get that out of the way right because now. Because I, I don't like that phrase. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, pocket dial or purse dial? Thank yes. you. Done. Perfect. So what is post-pocket dial etiquette here? Um, a quick follow-up email apologizing for the pocket dial or purse dial. Entirely appropriate, particularly if it went to work contacts. Yeah. Very simple, simple answer to this one. And people will appreciate to know that you didn't intend to and that you even care enough to follow up. Do you want to text them or do you want to email them since they're work con- – like, I'm just curious. Do I don't you- know. You don't want to escalate it too much. But if you really did multiple pocket dials, purse dials during the weekend, you genuinely feel bad about it, contacting them in the 
medium that you're most comfortable talking to them in is appropriate. Oftentimes for work, that's email. Sometimes for work, work colleagues, a text is just fine, gets the message there quickly in a way they're going to understand. All right. And of course, okay. the larger question here, though, is did you, you know, pocket dial them and then the speaker turned on and then they heard something <laughs> really awful? Yeah. What do you do then? You blame it on your child. All right. Rosie and Dan, thanks so much for telling our audience how to behave. You're welcome. <laughs> you're most welcome. It's a pleasure. Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senning, they're the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post and co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette 18th edition. And who knows, maybe they'll write a new book called Blame It on Your Kids. <laughs> the first edition. There you go. And by the way, people, after we taped that chat, Lizzie reminded me that I had once pocket-dialed her which mm. I had almost forgotten pretty Are much. Are you sure you just didn't have an emergency etiquette question yeah. that needed answering <laughs> it was immediately? was about pocket dialing, ironically. <laughs> but then mm. I decided to just send our show a letter under the pseudonym Caleb from San Francisco. It's very meta. That's how I work. <laughs> Folks, it doesn't have to be this complicated. If you've got a question, just send it to us. Go to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. Now, it's time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. And today our subjects are the celebrated Stradivarius violins. And our teacher is Margaret Bacher. She plays solo violin in concert halls around the world and is a concert master with the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra. She also curated the orchestra's Stradfest LA, which kicks off Wednesday. That is a series of performances in which musicians will be playing eight strads, worth $40 million. And Margaret, welcome to you and to the strad you brought with you. Thank you. We're happy to be here. Thanks. <laughs> you speak on its behalf. I do. All right. So let's start at the beginning. The violins are crafted starting in the late 1600s by a guy named Antonio Stradivari. Tell us a little bit about well, Stradivari lived a very long life. He was from Cremona, Italy, which is where the center of violin making happened in the mid-1600s. But he really came into his prime at the turn of the century. And that's when these golden period strads, which were really highlighting at the Stradfest, started being made. They are the most sought after and also the most rare. Now, he also, though, made harps, I believe. He, he made, made guitars, harps, violas, cellos. Why did the violins specifically rise to prominence? What makes them so special? Well, you know, he made over a thousand instruments, and 650 instruments still survive today, and of those, 500 are violins. So clearly, he did make more violins. The cellos are also extremely valuable and, okay. and very rare. Let's just talk about the violins then. What about them makes them the best violins? Well, I think probably a combination of a lot of different things. I find the instruments to be, they have incredible boldness and finesse and elegance. What do you, what do you mean by boldness? Well, in terms strides, of volume? Or? In terms of being able to reach the last row of the concert hall, they mm -hmm. have an incredible presence in their sound, but they also, that's coupled with an incredible elegance of sound. And what do you mean by elegance? Well, Stradivarius is, as opposed to, say, Guarneri del Jesus, which were the other kind of comparable instrument maker in that time, and they're both extremely valuable instruments. I, I've always said the Guarneri del Jesus sound is like chocolate, and the Stradivarius sound is like diamonds. The del Jesus tend to have a very, very strong bass, lots of power and push in the sound, 
And strads just kind of sit up there and sound lovely and beautiful. Clear, kind of clearer, maybe. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps. Do we know sort of technologically why his violins have that sound? Certainly, you know, Strad was an adventurer. He, he started messing around with his patterns around the turn of the century. But why is it that we can examine these great instruments and yet not reproduce them? Hmm. There has to be something mysterious about that time in that place. Are are you making a case for magic? You know what? I've always said, I always do believe that that moment in history in northern Italy, perhaps the climate, how the wood was cured, you know, they hang them up in the windows. They Mm -hmm. still do today. You see violin makers all over Cremona. Sure. The ecosystem at that time may have been just perfect for making instruments. I don't know. Wow, something in the air, literally. Something in the air, something in the climate, something in the moisture, something the way that the sun was without pollution at that time Mm -hmm. created a certain kind of magical moment, and and that coupled with the extraordinary craftsmanship. Now, each one of these violins is given a name. It has a name and a a kind of provenance. Who decides what these things are called? That's a mystery because they keep getting renamed. For instance, the instrument I brought today is the Milstein Strad. Nathan Milstein was a really extraordinary violinist who died in 1992. And when he died, he played this violin for 40 years of his career. Therefore, it became the Milstein Strat, because he was such a prominent soloist. And you actually helped the the owners of this Strat decide to buy it. Is that right? Yeah. They had asked Martin Chalafour and I, the concertmaster of the L.A. Philharmonic, and I to come into Disney Hall and play nine or ten strads that they were considering buying. And so they were brought from all over the world. And this one won? And this one won. <laughs> it was, he called it the shootout um, <laughs> at Disney Hall. Um, when this one came out of the case, I recognized it immediately because I had seen Milstein play as a young girl. I was shocked, honestly, that it was for sale because it had been in a bank vault for 13 years. Oh, man. So I grabbed it and I was like, me first. <laughs> I want to play. <laughs> but does that color it a little bit for you that, it, you know, the provenance of it is, is as exciting as maybe the sound it's making? Absolutely. How, That's do you clear that, the... how do you clear that out of your head as a musician? Though? Well, you don't. I think that's part of the inspiration of playing the instrument. It's past, and this instrument specifically, the Milstein, when I picked it up, I heard his sound. I do think instruments take on the kinds of personalities of the players. All right, let's. Would you play some for us? Sure. Can you describe how playing that instrument is different than your usual violin? You know, I'm, I'm blessed because I actually have a really interesting violin. I have a Strad composite. Stradivarius's teacher was Niccolò Amati. He made the violin. It was apparently brought into Stradivarius's shop, and Stradivarius put a new top on the violin. Wow, so it's part Strad. And revarnished. So I have a wonderful instrument. Yeah, it's kind of like taking a Lexus and putting, I don't know, a Rolls Royce on top exactly. of it. Those are both still pretty cool. Yeah, exactly. But after the 100% Strad, 
How tough is it to step back to your merely excellent <laughs> violin? The first few days are a little sad, but I always know I'll get another chance. So. All right. I should also point out that there was another very famous violin-making family called the Galliano Violins. I used to own a Galliano. Used to. You got rid of are it? We, are you related? I don't know, but I, I'm pretty sure that they're the best violins ever made. And I I'm, think Stradivarius would have something to say about that. Well, but. he's not with us anymore, and I'm sitting right here. So I'm wondering... When's there going to be a Galliano Fest? There were a lot of Gallianos, actually. You know, that that was like generations of violin makers. So you're saying they're less rare and not cool? No, they're excellent violins. <laughs> Thank you. You should be proud. Margaret Bacher, a concertmaster with the L.A. Chamber Orchestra. Stradfest L.A. kicks off Wednesday and runs through Sunday. Stradfest! <laughs> Tailgate with Pino Grigio and... Catgut hacky sacks. And by the way, everybody, you are listening to more of Margaret playing Bach on her Strad right now, and we've got audio and video of the whole performance on our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. Bask in some truly beautiful sounds. Yes, because you're going to have to cease basking in this episode of the Dinner Party Download Aww. because it's over. Sad. Yeah. Jackson Musker is our assistant producer. Our interns are James Delahousie and Esther Mania. Brittany Martin helps with things digital. Engineering assistance this week came from Brendan Willard a.k.a. Bad Brendan, yep. and Jeff Peters. Peter Clowney is our executive producer. Thanks also to Lindsay Edgecombe. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. Paper cuts are not just a slow way to die. They're also a band from San Francisco. Wow. Their new album, Life Among the Savages, comes out in May. Here's a track from it called Still Knocking at the Door. Bon appétit. The Dinner Party Download. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. Thanks for li- Hmm. Lizzie Post. What she want? Hello? Anyway, their voices are okay, but they don't compare to Ira Glass or Garrison Keillor. Lizzie, oh, we can God. hear you right now. I mean, basically, I just do it for the Twitter mentions. What? This is just rude.